if you follow soccer in England closely enough, I'm not just talking about the Premier League or even the Championship for that matter, there are certain clubs that just seem to have a massive disconnect between fan base fantasy and football club reality. Now, usually this revolves around clubs where the fans think that the club is bigger than it really is. It's amazing how quickly the name of a club can cause an ugly arrogance to fester amongst its fan base, or that the crest on the shirt is somehow a a divine symbol. Of course, I'm talking about clubs like Arsenal or Leeds, and you can throw Aston Villa in there too, why not? Where their fans just have no concept of reality. Because while there might have been past success or successes, there's no current foundation for long-term progress, sustainability, and future development. Congratulations, your club is currently irrelevant. It was actually kind of a firing line. The funny thing is at Brighton, it's the exact opposite. Yes, there is a massive disconnect between the outspoken minority of fans and the silent majority in the club. But the loud, irrational Brighton fans, and I say fans with large air quotes because while I enjoy being a loud Brighton fan, I don't find myself thinking along these same lines. The loud, irrational Brighton fans want to retreat from the limelight. The growing pains that go with a coaching and style overhaul are somehow unbearable. They're the only ones who don't see the progress. Brighton is a good team, and you shouldn't need me to tell you that. Brighton are growing in popularity. People love watching Brighton play and talking about their style. And I'm not just talking about the expected goals army, whose chosen leader is definitely the Seagull. I'm talking about even the casual American fan that have no clue who Brighton are as a club. I'm talking about the football pundits and tabloid writers all over the place. And while I understand that I am presenting superficial evidence to analyze a competition that is brutal in terms of it's all about the result. Because at the end of the day, 15% of a division consisting of 20 out of the top 78 richest clubs in the world are going to get relegated. But objectively watch Brighton play, please. Objectively look at the youth teams. Objectively look at the culture of the club, the ownership. The hoopla surrounding the attempted Super League startup should show you that Brighton are in a better place than just about every other club in England with regards to ownership. Yes, Six tried to take away, but look at the owners of the rest of the league. Be patient with Tony. He's the last English fan bloke left in this circus. He's the last of the dudes. We aren't going down this year. And while yes, it's the club's fourth year in the, in the league, this is Potter's second. Second in the league, third in England, third season not coaching in Sweden. Let him build a foundation at the club. Let him establish himself. He's not getting Brighton relegated. Look at our wingbacks that have been out injured. Look at the lack of money we've invested. Look at the signings we, and I'm talking about the club, not Potter here, got wrong. Look at who the club couldn't get for Potter. Darwin. Darwin Nunez. Look at what Potter has built with the hand he has been dealt. He brought in Robert Sanchez, Ben White. Look what he's done with Dan Byrne. Look what he's done with the rest of the defensive unit. Look what he dug out of the Chelsea youth team in Tariq Lamptey. Steven Alzate's come in. The signing of Moises Caicedo. This is real growth. 
Name another club in England where a manager is getting proportionately better performances from their level of players than Brighton. Name one. I'm waiting. We have absolutely battered some clubs. Tottenham, Manchester United, we've taken it to them. That is progress. And if we don't get relegated, which we won't, and if we don't qualify for Europe, which we aren't ready for at the moment, at least not in terms of squad depth, then it really doesn't matter where we finish in the league. Potter and this current Brighton squad can give anyone in England, any club in England, and probably the world, one hell of a game. And Brighton are even going to win a few of those games. Yes, we struggle against teams we are supposed to beat, but isn't that the sign of a good team? A great team is able to consistently take care of inferior teams and consistently perform against the best. Are Brighton there yet? Definitely not. But are you going to say that any of the other clubs mid-table can take it to teams, albeit inconsistently, the way Brighton can? Really? Come on now. Let's have some composure. Have it. Alrighty, yes. Get in. It is so great to be back on the microphone. And gosh, yeah, a lot has changed in my life since we last talked. <laughs> I say we like I have more than 10 unique listeners. Um, but yes, I am working a new job in a new state, um, that being Florida. And it's been super hectic moving out. Uh, I just graduated from the University of South Carolina and, and getting started. But now that I'm sort of settled in and living a life that is full of aquaculture, lattes, Mexican lagers, and Brighton. It's not a classic combination, I understand that, but it's still it's still a glorious one. Um, anyway, finally we have some time to podcast, and as the humidity levels continue to climb, let's dive into some Brighton. We'll get in we'll get back into a fan base discussion later, but I really wanted to look at the last three results. Brighton haven't scored in a while, by the way. Uh, the nil-nil is against Everton and then Chelsea, and then this most recent performance against Sheffield United, easily one of the most disappointing performances and results of the season. But really, if you place these last three games in a vacuum, they summarize Brighton's campaign thus far pretty well. I mean, maybe not perfectly. We didn't batter a team with 75% of the ball the whole game, and outshoot them 30-2 and still manage a defeat. But at its core, let's think about it. Brighton played the teams 4th, 8th, and 20th in the table, and there was basically no difference in performance and outcome, especially when you isolate the three-thirds of the pitch. We didn't concede anything against any of them. Yes, Sheffield United scored, but hear me out. We weren't broken down by any of those teams. We bossed the midfield in all three of those games. Of course, the Potter ball system basically means that we play with a midfield seven at times. And yes, even though we only had 35% of the ball against Chelsea, we controlled the midfield. Part of that is on Thomas Tuchel. He's even more pragmatic than Graham Potter is. We created a zillion half chances in the three games. Couldn't finish any of them or turn them into more clear-cut chances. But overall, we once again played well enough to get more than two points from those three games. And that is Brighton's season. Play the exact same way against everyone and pretty much have the same results and performances against everyone. 
Case in point, we won't have won a game against any of the three clubs that are going to get relegated this season, which is kind of a backhanded sign of improvement for the delusional, outspoken Brighton fan because that means our points have come against teams better placed in the table. But let's get a little more granular here and talk about a few of the position groups over these last three games. I want to start with the back three because it doesn't really matter who Potter has slotted in there at various points throughout the season. They have been stout for the entire campaign, and they continued to be over these last three games. Yes, Webster has looked rusty since his return, but that's to be expected. I mean, he was out for six weeks, and I'm fine with that. He made two glaring errors against Chelsea and didn't get punished. I'm talking about the chance that gave Pulisic an opportunity and then the sequence that ultimately fell to Kai Havertz. Of course, that explains why Chelsea didn't convert on any of those two chances because what a wasteful front three they have. And I can say that as a Brighton fan because at least Brighton's front three didn't cost some $250 million. But yes, that's neither here nor there. The point is, Webster's two errors against Chelsea didn't get punished. His error against Sheffield was punished. The heavy touch was poor and frustrating because he could have just played it out for a throw-in. And again, Sheffield are incapable of playing, so that would have nullified the attack completely. But he went for the cheeky touch. It was a heavy touch. And then he pinched forward to compound the error, leaving some space in behind. The rotation by everyone else was fine. We defended the situation okay, and then obviously Pascal Gross would like to have that that situation back. It's hard to harp on him. He's been an absolute servant to the club. He's earned the right to make that mistake. And, and let's not forget, it's it's really not his natural position to be breaking up counterattacks at a full sprint facing his own goal. And speaking of Pascal Gross and other midfielders not playing in their natural positions, let's talk about the wingback selections. Because while I stand by Potter a thousand percent, and I don't really even want to say that because I feel like that suggests there was some kind of doubt at some point before, which there wasn't, at least not from me. I believe his decision to play Pascal Gross and Jakob Moder as wingbacks against Sheffield United can definitely be questioned in hindsight. Yes, this exact combination of Moder and Gross contained Everton quite well, but the enchilada made that extremely easy. I, I still don't understand what Carlo Ancelotti was doing. Pascal Gross and Jakob Moder are not natural fullbacks and definitely can be exploited by balls around the corner and in behind those spaces. Because, yeah, they're not natural at the position, but they're also not the quickest. But no, Ancelotti tried to play through the turrets. You know, no surprise that didn't work against the three center backs and the two holding midfield players. And did Carlo Ancelotti really think that the front two of Richarlison and James Rodriguez was going to work in that situation? I mean, James kept coming deep to get on the ball, which basically left Richarlison as a lone striker against the three center back. I mean, that was a terrible idea, but I, I still don't know what he was doing. But I digress. The point is, Gr Pascal Gross and Jakob Moder weren't really tested against Everton. And then against the more dangerous, or at least supposedly more dangerous, Chelsea attack, Potter went back to his now infamous five center back system, and they defended stoutly even with Webster's rust. And they gave Chelsea absolutely nothing other than when they mean the Brighton back three themselves turned it over. And then Potter returned to the Gross and Modair partnership for Sheffield United. And I understand the logic behind that decision. 
but I don't think Graham Potter analyzed the logic correctly. Yes, Sheffield United cannot play football. They are an anti-anti-anti-football. I mean, people think Burnley are anti-football. No, no, no. Sheffield are anti-football. Burnley are at least vertical. They play direct. They play physical. In At least in their attack. It pisses everybody off because it's so simple, stupid, but you can't stop it. By the way, Brighton would probably have finished sixth this season if Chris Wood was their striker. Um, just saying. But Sheffield are, are just nothing. They're so bad. Uh, they, they can't even play anti-football. I mean, that tactic is way too sophisticated for them. So, yes, I agree with Potter. Let's get our best players on the ball, on the field, and play basically a 3-7-0. Even in positions that have a little bit more defensive responsibility. In this case, we're talking about the two wingbacks. And that is definitely... You know, in terms of players who could play those wingback positions, it's definitely Pascal Gross and Jakob Moder. Fine. But then why not play a back four? Why not go Veltman, Webster, Dunk, Burn? Go 4-3-3 or go 4-2-3-1. At least then you have four players that are never going to concede anything against Sheffield United. And yes, I understand we can't legislate for an Adam Webster mistake, especially when he's been rusty. I understand that. But have your four at the back and then have your six attacking players completely boss the midfield, be more fluid back to front. And I think we could have taken it to Sheffield United way, way, way more than we did. Because while Sheffield United were under a moderate siege, especially in the second half, it was never a real stranglehold. There was always some sort of weird, broken, awkward way out. Some sort of weird fluke double deflection to David McGoldrick, and then suddenly Sheffield United are out of their own half. And when I think back to some of the great Brighton performances of the season, just in terms of relentless attack, Newcastle, Tottenham, the low life of Croydon, this wasn't one of those performances, and it really should have been. I just think maybe the expansive 3-7-0 that Potter loves to play was too sophisticated for this game. A little more structure, a little less fluidity, a little bit more directness could have worked better. Really demoralized Sheffield, really kept coming wave after wave, Ball over the top, ball over the top. Quick forward passes, I don't don't know. I'm I'm just trying to come up with some sort of long-winded justification to be upset. Because really, I don't have an an explanation. I mean, we'll get to our miserable front three in a second, but I, and and believe me, we're going to get to that. But I, I also want to talk about the glimmer of light in the team, the spotlight at the end of the tunnel, if you will, the joy of the squad. And that is our midfield too, because wow. I mean, how good has our midfield been over the last three games? And really, it's really a midfield one because it's all Eve Basuma, and then he elevates whoever he plays with. And when it's Adam Lallana, it is just, it's pure ecstasy out there. And and let's enjoy Eve Basuma while we can, folks, because if the money is right, Brighton definitely will, and most certainly should, by the way, use him to raise some cash for the talisman that we need up front. But goodness me, I mean everything, tackling, tracking back, winning challenges, literally single-handedly breaking up attacks. The technical ability on the ball, the passing, the knack for finding space, for creating space for others. The ability to drive forward, dribbling. It's, oh, it's, it's so good. Him and Lalana are a dream duo because it's, it's the creative old man with the tenacious youngster. Because whatever Eve might lack in, in creative passing in the final third, Lalana more than makes up for. 
And yes, it helps that the wing backs and the forward three are basically extra midfielders. We often overrun the middle of the park, but still, it is an honor to watch Ibusuma play. I, I really mean that. And I hope Brighton can hold out for a big-time offer because if the money isn't there this window with, with everything that's going on with the pandemic and, and finances being so screwed up, I just hope we don't cave for for a $30 million offer when, when he's easily worth you know $50 million plus. And I'm not really worried about that. I mean, Tony Bloom has an excellent track record of not letting players go until he wants to. It's just a shame for as much as Yves Basuma and Adam Lallana dominate the midfield and, and create so many attacks and, and, and stifle the opposition so brutally that the front three, for as great as Eve and Adam are, the front three are equally wasteful. And the, and the front three have just been hopeless again over the last three games, especially. I mean, again. I mean, oh my God, it's frustrating. And they weren't even as wasteful in the Sheffield game as, as the other two games against Everton and Chelsea, which is just, it's, it's embarrassing. It's literally embarrassing to actually say that out loud. But against Sheffield and the, and the anti, 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 playing style that they bring to the table. Brighton just weren't able to get the ball back to front fast enough to create as many chances as they, as they usually do. Everything was was far too slow, far too pragmatic, which is why, again, I think maybe a little bit more vertical formation, a 4-3-3, for example, could have been a little better. But but this is turning into a joke with our front three. I mean, Mope, Neil Mope is the mentally weakest footballer I've ever seen. And End of story. Period. I, I don't know what else. I don't know what else to say. This is a this is a joke. He doesn't have the confidence to cross the street. I don't know how he wakes up in the morning. He he should be afraid. He should be afraid to wake up because it means he has to cook breakfast. And I don't know if he can sort that out in his brain. He he actually has that little confidence, which which is a shame because we've seen glimpses in these last two seasons where he is full of confidence and spontaneous and he, and he doesn't think and he's annoying as hell to play against. And I do think that Potter has deliberately tried to take some of that out of his game a bit, which is probably for the better to almost everyone. I mean, more composure in front of goal. Don't get so low. Don't get so high. You know, be more composed mentally on the pitch. I mean, a little bit more composure in life even is always good. Well, well, maybe not to everyone. The small Frenchman needs to be unleashed again because whatever version of him this is, just it ain't it. Which which brings me now to Welbeck. And, and I mean, he is the most clinical and, and natural finisher we have. But he's just not good enough on the ball technically to play this Potter Ball 3-7-0 style. The false nine, the poor man's man city. So we will never get the most out of him, which is fine. But that just means there are going to be so many just hair-pulling moments because he gets into great spots, he finds little spaces, because he is that natural poacher veteran number nine, but the little touch or the little flick or or the quick feed or the, the short passing combination that's required to create the chances we need to win with Potterball will never be consistently executed by Danny. 
But, I mean, again, what are you going to do? You're going to take him off? And, okay, who are you going to put on? Zakiri, he's obviously not ready yet. Connolly, you know, we know he can't. You know, and I'm happy to put Alexis McAllister out there. But then, you know, we have even less natural finishing on the pitch. So it, it's hard to justify that, in my opinion. I think Welbeck has to stay on the field. And then there's Leandro. Leandro... Trossard. I mean, he is our best attacking player right now. There's there's no doubt about that. And he does a lot for the team. And lately, he's been really good at tracking back and, and winning the ball in midfield and turning transition defense quickly into transition attack. But I think he's just being victimized by the other two schmucks out there with him. I mean, his link-up pay, play is way better than the other two. And he, he, and he can create... But but the others just can't. And if and if we just finished some of the chances he creates, or if our supposed strikers at least had an eye for goal equal to his, and I'm not and that's not saying much because it's not like Leo is is a goal machine, but come on. You know, please, it, it just it, it's he's it it seems like at times he's the only one able to create along with Alana. So anyway, yeah, I had to get that little rant over the about the last few games out. So thank you for listening to that. Um, but enough about the squad in the last few games. Let's look ahead to this coming weekend where we have, who do we have here? Who do we have this weekend? I thought it was like a really small club. Um, I'm actually having a hard time finding them on my notes here. They're so small. It says, what does it say here? Leads? What is a lead? What other notes do I have here? It says, ugly man bun. Foolish and naive coach. Robin Cock. Hey, Leeds man. Did you miss me? Oh, this will be another Newcastle level drumming. And my God, Leeds were so lucky to escape with only a 1-0 defeat up at the local dump earlier this campaign. And when I mean local dump, every great city needs a a trash city next door to take some of the less desirable aspects and sort of hide them away. Like in the U.S., for example, like Washington, D.C. has Baltimore, London has Croydon, and Peterborough has Leeds. Okay, human geography lesson aside, no matter how badly Brighton are playing, no matter how how many Brighton players are out injured, no matter where we're playing Leeds, we play Leeds on top of a Walmart, as long as the delusional Argentinian is coaching, Brighton will win. It's just, if Sheffield play the anti-anti-anti-whatever, Leeds play the most pro-Potterball system you could create. I mean, if you designed a formation... Style and personnel to be absolutely battered by Potterball. It would be Marcelo's. I don't even need to go over it any more than that. This should be a comfortable three. And as for Brighton, you know, Ben White comes back into the fold. I expect him to return to the starting 11. And I expect Potter to go with the five or six center back system. It'll be interesting to see if he keeps Moder in the left wing back position ahead of Big Dan Byrne, for example, but I would expect Gross to either slide out of the lineup or be moved a little further forward with a back five of 
again, either Burn or Modair with, you know, Webster, Captain Dunk. How good has Lewis Dunk been recently, by the way? Uh, ben White and, and Joel Veltman. And then Basuma with either Lalana or Gross. You know, you could move Lalana a little further forward if you wanted Gross to stay in the lineup. I, I don't expect Trossard or Welbeck to come out of the squad, but... But I really think we should try something else other than Neil Mope. Uh, this is ridiculous. Anyway, that's a wrap on this, the fifth episode of Brighton and Banter. I promise I'm back into the, the podcasting routine again, which is nice because I really enjoy making these even if even if no one listens. Um, anyways, I, I do want to talk a bit more about the fan disconnect, uh, that I see blowing around the various social medias. So uh, let's come back and do this again sometime midweek. And in the meantime, up the Albion. Have it.